You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. What's going on, members of the jury? And as always, happy Freedom Friday. You know, we are now just a few short weeks away and one episode short of reaching our six-month mark since releasing the first episode of Members of the Jury. It has been such an amazing journey. The people I have met and the stories I have heard have all been truly amazing, and we would have never been able to get to this point in the show if it wasn't for all of the amazing guests and listeners. Now, with that being said, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, please send us an email at lhursty at membersofthejurypod.com. Or you can find us on social media at Members of the Jury and send us a private or direct message. You can also reach out to us if there are any type of laws or policy changes that you want the show to address. Now, speaking of law and policy changes, we talk a lot about policy changes that can be implemented within the criminal justice universe so that overall we can have a much better criminal justice system. Now, as a public defender, we defend against the system every single day on the front lines in the courtrooms. But outside the courtrooms, there are plenty more battles happening within the war. Now, our guest today is a freedom fighter every single day. But in her own time, she also takes on the battles within the criminal justice system fighting for change. Today, she is going to break down for us how policy changes to the budget in regards to criminal justice can result in a much better system. So, Shandy, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury. Hello, Lucas. Hello, members of the jury. This kind, smooth, incredibly persuasive voice belongs to that of Shandy. As Lucas mentioned, I am also a fellow freedom fighter. I am a public defender and have been a public defender for the past three years. I have done uh, 10 jury trials at this point, hoping to do more soon. And as Lucas mentioned, I am also involved in some outside office organizations to address criminal justice reform more broadly. Through my office, um, I am the recruitment and retention chair of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. And so that is kind of what is the catalyst for our topic today. As Lucas mentioned, I am um, going to be talking a little bit about policy and how policy changes in the budget can make an impact on the criminal justice system. So let me just kind of start. Everything started back really in uh, this past summer of 2020 during the summer of social unrest, really. There was a lot um, across the country related to a lot of protests across the country related to the murders of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, um, among many, many others. And going on marches, which me and many of my colleagues and friends did, was helpful. But I think that to Lucas's point earlier that you really need to attack criminal justice reform from many different sides. It's not something that can only be changed from a legislative perspective or from a jury perspective in the courtroom. It really has to be addressed on multiple levels. And so to that end, I wanted to kind of do my part, not only as a public defender, but just as a citizen in the community, seeing other citizens hurting, seeing my clients hurting, seeing my own family members hurting from these types of instances. So what I decided to do was just draft a letter to my um, district supervisor, because those are the people who run the county that I live in, and um, their budget was being discussed, I believe, in October of last year. So I just kind of reviewed the budget, the proposed budgets for um, the public safety group 
and and just kind of made some suggestions as just a citizen in the community of how I thought um, that money could be better spent. And I bet you're asking, what is the public safety group? So that is the kind of overarching organization that uh, runs, not really runs the, um, the office. I don't know, Lucas, how would you explain it? I know that it, it, it is comprised of different organizations. So for example, the sheriff's department, probation, um, health and human services, I think falls under public safety group, the public defender's office and the district attorney's office. I'm not sure if I'm missing any others. I think that that's all of the entities, you know, the way that I've always kind of associated the public safety group is, you know, basically all aspects of the criminal justice system fall under that category, as well as some additional, you know, quality of life services, and just overall well being in local communities, but more or less all aspects of the criminal justice system fall under that category as it relates to budget expenses and distribution. Okay, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. So I submitted, I just reviewed the proposed budget from each of the departments that I listed, specifically looking at um, the sheriff's department and the district attorney's office's proposed budgets and just kind of line itemed things that I thought that money could be reallocated in other ways. So that's kind of the gist of it. Well, we're super excited to get into basically breaking down this policy letter that you wrote your local representative. You know, I had an opportunity to have it sent to me and and read over it. And I could tell you that it doesn't necessarily need to be long or have, you know, a bunch of LSAT and SAT dictionary words in there to be impressive. It's simple language that really packs a punch and can lay out a lot of the issues uh, on the front lines that could be addressed that would have a, such an impactful change. And so I'm super excited to get into it. I also think it can serve as a way to let those who want to get involved with criminal justice reform and change an outlet to, to get involved, that you don't have to be a lawyer, you don't need to be battling in the courtroom to impact change and have a better system that we're all a part of. And so I wanted to go ahead and get into the letter. I, you had briefly mentioned it uh, a moment ago, at least uh, regard to the first issue. And, and that was something that you had titled the areas of additional funds. And you essentially talk about how that there needs to be a better distribution of cost or more just money in general given to the public defender's office. And I thought you made a very compelling argument because you noted that it's the public defender's office who are responsible for defending all indigent individuals in that under their jurisdiction. But there are multiple prosecution agencies. Can you go ahead for the members of the jury and just kind of touch a little bit on that scenario and and why there would need to be a more better funded public defender's office? Yeah. So I wanted to start with this because this is, I think, majority of where the policy, well, a large chunk of where the policy budget changes need to be made. And it starts with our representation of our clients. And so that's why I kind of started here. For me, I was specifically looking in this section at the disparities between the budget that the prosecuting agencies have versus the um, organizations that are are, uh, chosen to represent them. So in this case, the district attorney's office and the public defender's office. And you mentioned, Lucas, that there are several prosecuting agencies. And so in the city that we live in, there are county prosecutorial agencies, and then there are local city prosecutorial agencies, and they don't necessarily operate under the same budget, and they don't necessarily charge or prosecute in the same way. And so it's important to differentiate both of those things and to consider how that affects our representation of our clients. And so just just looking at the disparities 
I guess let me start. Let me just say this also. I am by no means a budget analyst. I simply just read the um, budget proposals and just based on my view of criminal justice and what I think is important um, in in reducing recidivism rates and ensuring that, um, you know, quality of life crimes aren't being, you know, prosecuted. And, and so looking from those type of like social justice lens, as well as financial lens, I, I kind of put those two together. And then just from a, a, from a taxpayer perspective, I, when I wrote this letter, I also wrote it from the view of like me as a taxpayer, where do I want my money to go? And so that's kind of where the lens that I was looking through. And so just looking at the disparities between the sheriff's or the district attorney's office and the public defenders, one of the things is just looking at the staff. They have approximately three, one paralegal for every three attorneys. The public defender's office where I work has one one paralegal per branch. So that means we have a minimum of five attorney, uh, five paralegals. We might have one or two more in each branch, just depending on the 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 weight of the caseloads there. But for the most part, we just have one. And at each branch, there's a minimum of twenty attorneys, and so we're all sharing those paralegals. And so that was one issue that I noted. And paralegals are really helpful because they help with motion writing. They help with reaching out to clients and witnesses. And all of that is falling on the attorneys currently, whereas the prosecutors don't really have that as much because they have those paralegals working and doing all that kind of stuff. And it's really difficult when we as the attorneys also have to deal with the heavy lifting of talking to our clients, interviewing our clients' families. And so that is a major, a major t- source of time that we're putting into that, um, as well as, you know, just even submitting re- investigation requests, being in court all day, things like that. And so even just having additional paralegals would be helpful. So not only that, but they have more um, investigators that go out and speak to witnesses and um, are gathering evidence and things like that. And so those are just kind of some of the disparities just from a staff perspective. Additionally, a lot of prosecutorial agencies, whether it be local um, prosecutorial agencies or county, they also get grants that um, allow them to prosecute, for example, prison cases. And so that is something that the, the the public defender's office is not getting in response. So while the prosecutors are getting money to prosecute those, my office is not getting additional money to combat and to litigate those same things. So we're already at a disadvantage in that way uh, because we have to use the same amount of resources to combat additional cases. You know, when I first read this first point, I thought it was so accurate and really, I think, truly hits at like one of the biggest issues within the system nationwide. I mean, I know one of the first things President Biden was advocating for was across the country uh, for pay parity uh, between public defenders and district attorneys because across the country, it is way off. I mean, I think we're fortunate enough in our jurisdiction where that pay issue is pretty close on or not on par, but throughout the country, that's not the case. And in fact, in a lot of states, and I think jurisdictions, they don't even necessarily have the funds or the budgets to have in place their own independent public defender's office and entity. I know in my hometown, uh, that's not the case. And but there's definitely a local prosecutor's office. There's definitely a state prosecutor's office. And so the fact that we know for a fact every single state is going to have a state attorney's office down to the local attorney's office, but that that's not reciprocated at the defense level, I think that shows a huge disparity. I mean, I've always said that I feel some type of way that within the presidential cabinet, there's an attorney general but there's no representative for the defense. And, you know, in the Constitution, there's a right to be defended, 
there's not necessarily a right to prosecute. Um, and so I've always thought that that was a huge disparity and that at the very minimum, you know, local, state, and county budgets need to ensure that that Sixth Amendment right is available to all people. And simply just having an attorney doesn't mean that that right is being met. It needs to be a competent, well-paid, well-educated, well-staffed attorney. And, and so I thought that hit the nail on the head. And to that point, in California, you get a lawyer for sometimes even things that are infractions, right? You know, we've seen cases come through that were charged as misdemeanors, and then they say, oh, we'll just let you plead to an infraction. Um, and I know from um, having clients that have come from other jurisdictions, and they're telling me, for example, um, that, you know, they're not getting um, counseled when making DUI pleas. When they're pleading to DUIs, they're not getting counseled. And that, because that has repercussions, not only in your own state, but across state lines, as far as, you know, Watson murder and just, just even the consequences of picking up additional DUIs, the fact that someone is not being counseled as to those consequences blows my mind. And so, yeah, to your point, it's not only that they are not getting that the government and either local or state capacity is not providing necessarily funds for that. Um, but that even when they are being, you know, represented by a public defender's office or some sort of indigent service in some way, it might not necessarily even be for every type of misdemeanor or felony offense. And that is equally shocking. Yeah. I know for a fact that there are courtrooms across this country where there are individuals being charged with crimes who ultimately are before a judge without representation. And before they know it, they're somehow involved in a guilty plea simply because a judge asked them if they did something and, and they didn't know any better and just said yes, um, without realizing that there's you know intricacies and elements within each charge that really need to be discussed and analyzed by an attorney. And even if someone may be what we say good for it, you know, they may be, ha you know, they might have the evidence to support that uh, charge and conviction. That doesn't mean that a conviction has to be the result of that case. And, you know, we will talk about it later, but a big notion is that justice does not equal conviction. And, you know, just because you get a conviction does not mean that there was justice. And the opposite is true. You can very well have justice without a conviction. So, you know, I wanted to get into one of the other points that you had under that funds, and you, and you mentioned it a little bit in, in your initial kind of response, um, and that was just with, you know, certain aspects of laws and prosecution that are being sought after and how there isn't then a match or... I For guess, the defense of that allegation. Ex exactly, or a response. And so, you know, one of the things that we talked about, at least in California, and I think it's a huge issue across the country is essentially the death penalty, you know, whether or not th that should be implemented uh, or not is one conversation. But the matter of fact is our Supreme Court has ruled that the death penalty is constitutional. And so majority, I think a majority of the states, um, if not, it's a very close call, um, do implement the death penalty. And the amount of money that has to go into each death penalty case is outrageous. And, you know, specifically from the defense side, you know, you need to have certain qualifications and certificates and trainings to even be able to litigate a death penalty case. And I'm sure that's true on the prosecution as well. But for example, in California, there's been a, a, a hold or stay on death penalty executions since I believe the 1980s and every county treats that stay differently because at any point in time that stay could be lifted. And just to address what Shandy was talking about, especially in our local jurisdiction is that for a while under a certain district attorney's regime, because of that stay and ban on death penalty cases, the prosecution agencies weren't seeking death penalty on even any of their cases, even though they could have. However, recently, a new regime at the district attorney's office has taken over and they have started re-prosecuting and seeking the death penalty allegations. But there hasn't been a reciprocal change in the budget to now allow for 
for example, more public defenders to go and get that specific death penalty training that is needed in order to properly defend these kind of cases. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you just brought up so many different like things to my mind because yes, execution costs aside, litigation costs for death penalty cases. And, you know, if, when you just think about it, a lot of times this is something where a public defender is second chairing. There's multiple attorneys working on these cases. Like you said, these are high level attorneys. And so if you have two, you know, two minimum, potentially three public defenders that are making, you know, X amount of money in the six figures, you have to pay each of them to work on this case. You have to pay for the investigators to go out and build all of this mitigation, interview all of these witnesses gather all of this evidence. Sometimes you have to do multiple, you know, witness interviews for the same person. And so when you consider their salary, when you consider the salary of the prosecutors that have to be, you know, taken into consideration, because a lot of times they do second chairing as well. All of the police investigation that has to go into these types of cases. I mean, it just really adds up. And so kind of circling back to why I wrote this letter, you know, at the end of the day, power will bend to money. And while that is an unfortunate product of our society, you know, it is what it is. And so, you know, that's why when you put it in a numbers perspective, and I like to say hitting, hitting them where it hurts, which is in the pockets, when you put it in that perspective, then it makes it really difficult for them to justify why they are or are not doing, you know, whatever it may be. And in this case, I mean, I believe uh, in this county, there are four active death penalty cases. And, you know, like you said, there has been a moratorium on ex- on actually executing the death penalty um, since the 80s. And it was renewed by the newest governor or the, mo- the current governor in 2019. And so, When you just add up all these numbers, I mean, it's clear that, you know, this is something that is quite a burden on taxpayers. And and I think that also in thinking about the death penalty, the other thing that kind of came in my mind when we were talking about it was the idea that the values that society holds changes over time. And so while retribution was a very large part of the criminal justice system in the early 1920s, 30s, 40s, Today, the focus has really shifted to rehabilitation and to really trying to get to the roots of, you know, why crimes are being committed, which is why all these, you know, propositions allowing for diversion in whatever form has come into play. And that's because society has recognized that simply putting people in jail or imposing the death penalty for certain crimes does not necessarily make the community safer, does not necessarily address victims and and their feelings about these cases and doesn't help the communities that are being more impacted than others in the system. And so I think when you consider the death penalty, I think I think not necessarily that everything should be dictated by societal norms, but I think that we should consider and you know, I would hope that prosecuting agencies would consider the values that society is the things that society is placing value on and it just it just seems like in today's society most people are not focusing on retribution so much as rehabilitation. And in that way, the criminal justice system needs to reflect those values and instead focus on evidence-based practices, focus on legitimate rehabilitation and not just locking people in cages. You know what I mean? And so I think that's one of the other things too. And then I also wanted to circle back to, I didn't even t- touch on this, but um, my first point, just when we were talking about the disparities you know, and the types of things that are being prosecuted. We have to deal with, you know, in the city that we live in as a border city, and there's hundreds of them across this country, you know, we also have to deal with litigating immigration issues. And for an or for an office that has no paid 
immigration attorneys, you know, it makes our job very difficult to not only have to do criminal defense work, but then also have to ensure that however we're advising our clients, that we are not affecting their ability to stay in this country or renew whatever status they have. And that is a really difficult burden, especially when immigration law is changing daily and not just because of presidential administrations, but just because of local leadership as well. And the, you know, the um, spring up, you know, safe haven communities. I mean, you have to consider all of these things. And the fact that the office I work in has no immigration attorneys, the fact that I am, I am presumed to be the immigration attorney for my client, you know, is really scary because I certainly don't want to be ineffective in any way. Um, but it's also a lot for, for us. And that's something that prosecutorial agencies don't have to worry about. They don't have to worry about anybody's immigration, immigration consequences in, as it relates to their prosecution of it. Whereas we have to expend the little bit of resources that we do have to ensure that our clients are not affected by that decision to move forward with these cases, regardless of their immigration status. So I also wanted to just mention that as being a huge burden, you know, to indigent service offices across the country that are dealing with specifically in Arizona, California, New Mexico, and Texas, where they are supposed to consider immigration concerns, but you know, it's still something that we have to expend resources on. That was a fantastic point. And just a couple of weeks ago, we released an episode titled What is Crimmigration, where we sat down one on one with an immigration expert and, and talked a lot about what you just mentioned, how the intersectionality between immigration law and criminal defense now is so intertwined that, you know, they really need to be hand in hand. They need to really have collaboration and communications with one another and essentially a a very close relationship with each other and defenses so that each and every client can get the best ultimate outcome. You know, and, and also going back to the point about the death penalty, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people whether it be in California or my home state of Indiana, where you when you actually break down the numbers of the death penalty versus life in prison, and you explain to them that the death penalty is outrageously more expensive than incarcerating someone for 20, 30, 40 years, they just never want to believe the numbers. And then even if they do believe the numbers, they somehow try to justify it because of the heinous crimes or acts that an individual may have even though it's probably contradictory to their religious beliefs. But I digress on that situation. That's a whole nother wormhole that we can get into one time. I'll probably have a death penalty episode where we really get into those weeds. But, you know, we'll save that for another time. You know, so your first part of your, your letter addressed areas for additional funds, which makes sense that our specific uh, unit within that umbrella of the budget just needs to get a share. Um, so that they can address better issues. Now, the second part of your letter comprised of reallocating funds that are essentially already approved for a certain destination or entity. What was your focus under this subsection? Yeah, so this connects also with the third one as it relates to quality of life crimes or I say crimes, but there's air quotes around that. Because a lot of the the things that are being prosecuted, that a lot of things that are on the books as quote unquote criminal or crimes really stem from, from social issues, right? It deals with mental health. It has to do the underlying issues involve mental health. They involve substance use. They involve, you know, family violence and issues related to, you know, people's access to resources. And so when I'm go when I was going through the budget, I was just looking for things that instead of perhaps prosecuting this or perhaps instead of the, for example, the sheriffs having some sort of homeless outreach organization instead of that, because historically 
people who are coming in contact with the police do not have a very strong relationship with them. There's issues with trust that is pervasive, not only with, you know, specifically in, you know, communities of color with the police. And so to me, it just doesn't really make sense that we would equip the very people who are the ones that our clients are scared of to go out and say, hey, let me try to help you get these services. And so as I was reading through their budget, I was like, let's take out these additional, these things, let's make this operation moot, and let's just put that money toward actual services that affect our clients and can actually help them. And the reason I bring that up is, and the reason I brought up the sheriffs is because when both you and I worked downtown, it happened all the time where our clients who were homeless and were simply being charged with lodging on the streets, the police officers would come up and they would say, hey, you know, do you want to go into a shelter? Clients would say yes or no one way or the other. And if they said yes, sometimes the officers would take them to a shelter where they couldn't go because it's only a women and children's shelter, or it's a couple and the shelter will only take the male and not the female or vice versa. Or, you know, a lot of our, our, a lot of our unhoused clients are really attached to their animals and the shelters won't let you bring your pet. And so then our clients are back right where they started. And all the officers did was drop them off at the shelter, watch them walk inside, but didn't actually do a warm handoff to see, are these services actually addressing the concerns of this individual? And so, and I think that's, what's important. It needs to address that person's concerns. And a lot of these organizations just don't. A lot of the, I I would say related to particularly the sheriffs and the district attorney's offices organizations, there are outside organizations through health and human services, through nonprofits that are trying to address those. And I think let's put the money toward them because they actually have the proper channels, the resources, and the knowledge of where people can go to actually make a difference in that person's life. And so that was kind of my thinking is like, let's, let's give the money to the people who are actually doing the work full time and not just sprinkling a couple dollars here and there to someone who's trying to on the surface, do the job, but is not actually effective. That's really beautifully said. And this section of the letter I thought was really beautifully written. I thought it essentially took what was something that gained a lot of national notoriety and conflict, I think it's fair to say, and addressed it in a way that took away the mainstream noise. Because at the end of the day, what this thing is saying is defund the police, um, except you, you don't say it that way. And you, you just immediately address the issues as to why one would say defund the police. And again... <clears throat> For anyone who would somehow misconstrue what defund the police was advocating for or trying to achieve, you know, we're not a saying abolish the police. There are definitely individuals out there and organizations out there who are trying to do that. I don't think the vast majority of Americans are trying to do that. Everybody wants to live in a safe and protected community. No one is advocating for anarchy out there. But at the same time, our police officers across the country are being forced to wear more hats than they can handle and they're being forced to wear more hats than what they're able to be trained on or sufficiently trained on and not even and not even more hats than they can handle but hats that are contradictory to their not necessarily contradictory to their purpose but but um the the issue is this yeah the reason i didn't write defund the police or even say it until you brought it up was because that is totally a misnomer like It does not mean that we don't want anyone, you know, that we don't want a police force protecting us and ensuring that like crimes don't happen. Like that is not what people are saying. What people are saying is that the police office, the the sheriff's department across the country are being charged with doing all of these social services that are not their job. And in fact, there are other organizations already doing that work that have a better, that have a better relationship with the surrounding community and a better relationship with our clients. 
the the fact that the police are trying to come in, as I mentioned, and help people who last week they arrested for the same crime does not foster you know, a positive relationship. They are going to look at these police officers skeptically and they are not going to trust them, even if that officer has the best intentions to try to help them. I want to interrupt you because I just, I can't, I, I, I can't recall how many times I read in a police report where the officer was ultimately arresting someone for a quality of life crime. And at the very end of the police report, it was like, First, I offered the individual services, but they said no. So therefore, I arrested them. And like that, and quite honestly, is just such ass backwards thinking. Like I just, I, I hated when I saw that. And it, and it, and it just doesn't make sense. Like you want me to trust you enough to go with you to this place, but. I have to do it on your time. That's the other thing too, is that, you know, it takes time for people to gain trust and foster relationships. And if you're coming up to me and you're wearing a uniform, there's three of you and there's one of me, you have your badges on your chest. You're, you're giving me a command to get up and walk with you to this one place to gather up all my belongings. You're not showing me any human decency or any sort of courtesy, you know what I mean? Like it, it just doesn't make sense that I would then trust you to know, to say that you have my best interest at heart and that you're actually trying to help me find these services. And so that's why to me, to even put that on the police, it's not necessary and it's actually not effective. And it's not effective before those reasons. You're approaching communities that you've already broken bridges with, that you can't, that can't really be rebuilt just by you saying, hey, I have this resource, this sheet of paper with resources, and now I can help you. Like, it just doesn't work like that. And like I said, there are already organizations doing the work. Give them the money. Let them do it. And so then our clients who already trust them, you know, will be more willing to, and it will take, and I think that's more effective because it won't take as many times for me to go back to the same person and say, hey, can I help you? You know, it's going to take more times for an officer to do that than someone who, can show you like, no, I do this for a living. And here's all these other people I've connected to services. Like that just makes way more sense to me than the person who literally arrested you last week for the same thing. And notes in the police report, I've contacted this person on 27 different, different occasions. And they've been in the same spot and the same position like that, that will never, that will never garner trust and that will never be effective. And so the, and the definition of insanity, right, is doing the same action over and over and expecting a different result. And I kind of feel like that's what's happening with these types of police services. I think, you know, I think it's a really great ideal to have officers go out and do community policing in this way. But I think when that bridge has already been burned with communities, you have to, I I don't know where to start, but I don't think that's the spot. And so it's just one of those things where, you know what, we can start fresh in another aspect, but here let's give it to the, let's give the money to the people who are already doing the work and are already in the weeds. And I think that's just a better source of money, especially since when I looked through the budget, it didn't really seem like they were making much headway. Like the homeless population hasn't gotten better since this organization was started. And like, if these are markers of success, like, sounds like we need to do something different. Well, I think COVID was probably your best example of how, or the fact that one could reallocate funds and it be okay. I mean, with COVID, you know, they haven't been arresting these quality of life individuals because there's essentially a a zero dollar bail associated with those offenses and and the thing is though not only are they not arresting or citing these individuals it's that they can't COVID has somehow solved the the homeless issue in so many of the places where it's rampant across this country because of the overarching health concern that it presented I mean if COVID were to go rampant in a homeless population, that community at large would be at such great risk. And I think that, you know, to your earlier point that the officers, you know, like, this isn't a indoctrination on them, they're doing what they're being asked to do, or, or somewhat trained to do or report. But the majority of these quality of life individuals are dealing with homelessness, 
substance abuse, and mental or mental health issues, if not all three or a combination of all three. And those are not overnight sensations. Those are deeply rooted issues that need to be unraveled with the right treatment, the right resources, and the right individuals. And unfortunately, you know, police officers in regard to those, I don't think are helpful. I think that at this point, you, you, you're right, that the bridge between those communities has been broken. And obviously, the police still need to police those communities to ensure that their safety within the homeless community because just because someone is homeless or suffers from substance abuse or mental health issues doesn't mean that they should be subjective to crimes. You know, we hear it all the time that homeless people are battered, robbed, unfortunately, even raped. And so police presence needs to be in those communities. But not wearing multiple hats, trying to ensure the safety, but then also get to the root of these issues. You know, that's for non-law enforcement agencies, I think, to handle. And so I thought that that was a really great way, articulate way of essentially bringing back the whole defund the police community, but do it in a way where an actual conversation can happen. Because now we're talking about the merits as to why, where that saying even came from. So one of the other things you mentioned as far as reallocating the funds was that you think more funds could go to something that you refer to as housing and wraparound services. Where does that play a role in the funds and how do you think that that could essentially have a better impact on the criminal justice community? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you already mentioned that, you know, our clients um, and those that are uh, unfortunately unhoused, you know, they are dealing with a lot more than just the fact that they don't have a roof over their head. Like you mentioned, they have substance abuse concerns. They have mental health. They might not have any family out here. They might have had some sort of trauma in their past that leads to, leads to substance, substance use and all that kind of stuff. And so for me, when I was looking through the budget and I was, and, and just thinking about, you know, what, what can we do to really address these underlying issues? One of the main things is yes, people need housing. And so that is why I made that suggestion. And then as far as wraparound services, we kind of use that to, as an overarching term to talk about mental health treatment, ability to access medications, ability to, you know, just even get like their SSI benefits. I mean, there are so many clients who I've spoken to that just because of those situations that you mentioned being robbed or whatever it may be, where now they don't have any form of identification to be able to go and access the little bit of funds they are getting from the government to be able to eat, to be able to get their food stamps and things like that. And so if we had some sort of overarching organization that can help them get ID cards that can help even something as simple as helping them get a light to put on their bicycle. So that way, when the police see that they're on a bike, that they're not being pulled over and then searched because they don't have a front light, very simple things like that really add up. Clients need medication. So that way, if they have some sort of diabetic issue, they can access that. They need to be able to speak to doctors. They need to be able to get into residential treatment. They need to be able to find, they need to be able to have ways to see their children. You know, a lot of clients or a lot of people who are unhoused have children in the foster care system or living with other relatives, and they need help accessing those types of things as well. Family court services, a lot of them have trauma from domestic violence. They need services with that. And so it just, in my mind, it's what can we do to address all of these concerns? And it seems very simple. I don't think I'm thinking of anything or suggesting anything that's outside of the box, but I think you just have to really consider what will address these concerns. And at the end of the day, what will address those concerns is housing, is resources, resources of any and every kind, because unhoused people are not a monolith. They all don't have the same issues. And so they need, and they, but they need resources and help on how to get those things. I mean, you don't know how many clients I've had that have told me, like, I don't know how to get a license. I can't pay for one through the DMV. And if you don't have a license, then they can't go to the bank and set up a bank account to get their SSI. And so now they're just walking around with no money and, and no access to anything. And if we can address that, then we can prevent our clients from going into a 7-Eleven and stealing a Gatorade 
and a sandwich because they can't access their SSI. So that was kind of my thinking on that, uh, because I just think that if we can, there's a lot of things, like you said, go hand in hand. And so if we can address them accessing money, then, you know, ideally, then they won't have to go into the 7-Eleven and take something out of necessity, which is what it is. And then waste taxpayer dollars for them to be charged with this crime, for them to get it dismissed down the line. I mean, it just, all these things are connected. And for me, if we can just put it in, in a perspective that taxpayers and just average citizens can understand, and hopefully they'll say, hey, that makes a lot of sense. Let me write to my local congressperson or whoever the local leaders are and say, hey, like these are ways that I think if we address these concerns and to my third point, decriminalize things like homelessness and simple possession of drugs, things like that, then ideally that money will be freed up to then help them get housing. So I think it's kind of just like a circle. If we take that money away from prosecuting those crimes and put it toward addressing the underlying issues, then we won't have crimes to prosecute, you know, in an ideal world. Well, you know, that makes sense to me. Um, so I, I am on board with that argument and think that we should continue making it. And I, I honestly don't think that money and affording these housing and wraparound services isn't the issue. I honestly think that it's just because most of the people in charge of their budget don't think that those home homeless people um, or unhoused clients would actually take advantage of the services if they were made available to them. And so they think that it might be a waste of time, resources, and money. But I can tell you that that's not the case. I, I mean, I think if anybody were to actually be able to represent, you know, what this kind of community is and what the people are are going to be public defenders because we have so much interaction with them because they're continuously arrested for these quality of life crimes. And I can tell you that I've had multiple clients who have been given an opportunity to have their case diverted or have their case dismissed as long as they're able to somehow connect themselves to these resources. And then the court gives them the referrals, gives them the guidance, and then does help with them. But at that point in time, they've had to get arrested. They've had to get booked. They've had to show up to court. They've had to do all of these things just to get access to these resources. And I'll never forget one of my favorite clients of all times over the course of six months literally went from a straight unhoused individual who was just contacted multiple times going to the same location and was given one of those opportunities. And by the time his case was dismissed, when I showed up to court, I didn't even recognize him completely dressed differently, washed clean, had a job. And it was amazing. And, and I went, I remember, I, I, you know, I went and in open court, told the judge that this man needs to have an article read about him in, in the local paper, that this needs to really be the face of how we treat these kind of cases, how we prosecute these kind of cases, and how we're able to get under, get out from above kind of the negative stigma with regard to these individuals and these cases. And so I, I love that. And I really think that as a society, if we continue to push for housing over handcuffs for those indigent populations, that we'll see a better effect and outcome in the criminal justice system as a whole. I love that, the housing over handcuffs. I love that. And I think the other thing too, Lucas, is these cases for trespass, for encroachment, that that stands in their way of being able to get resources sometimes. And so it's just one of those things where if we just nix, if we decriminalize those things, then we are helping our clients by omission, but we are helping them get into those resources. If we can, you know, decriminalize, then we can ultimately help our clients, I think, better actually be successful, which is what everyone wants. And I love housing over handcuffs. That is, I am putting that somewhere in someone's motion going on the record somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I remember seeing that at a, at a, you know, a homeless rally one time when we were working downtown and just thought that that was so simplistic, but so accurate and so moving that, you know, I've really loved it and say it as much as possible when I can. And I think we also know, especially we have objective evidence to show that evidence-based practices and prosecution works, collaborative courts are s successful and have better 
implementations than just putting someone through the normal course of the system. And so uh, I like that those are coming up more and more. And hopefully we get to a point where, you know, a normal quote unquote air quote prosecution you know, is kind of secondary to the first option of it, which is really addressing the root of the underlying issue. Now, your your last point I wanted to address was, and I, I really like to have you explain kind of the bridge, because on its face, it doesn't scream budget. Um, but you titled this third portion of your letter basically as policy changes. And you really focus on the notion of recidivism. And so can you explain to the members of the jury how you think the notion of recidivism plays a role in regard to the criminal justice budget? Yeah. So as I, as I noted in the letter, recidivism, while that's something that's always screamed out as markers of success for prosecutorial agencies, in reality, looking at the budget that I was reviewing, it's really only noted as a marker for probation. And the reason why that is not a super accurate marker or even really helpful is because probation doesn't monitor everyone. In fact, most people, I mean, I don't know if this is, I don't know how accurate this is, but I mean, we have so many clients on informal probation, right? And so because they don't come into contact with the probation department, there is no one tracking that entire group of people's, you know, quote unquote, recidivism rates. And so I just don't think it's a super accurate as it currently is. I just don't think it's a super accurate marker of success, but I do think it is an important marker because that is something that we are working toward to reducing, right? That's our ultimate goal as public defenders is to ensure that we don't see John Smith client again. And then ideally by, by, you know, addressing those underlying concerns and, and things like that. But um, so the reason I wanted to include that in the letter was because there's a lot more to it than just that. And I think that we need to kind of track this in a better way. And I don't, in my letter, I didn't have a, a suggestion as to how we could track it. But um, I think it is important because I think if we can show how, particularly with these new diversion statutes, with these propositions that allow for, you know, reductions in cases and things like that, with all of that, if we can use that to, to show, you know, the decrease in, in recidivism rates, I think that would be helpful. You know, I didn't really have any more ideas other than that, but I, but I thought that it was something that needed to be addressed because currently I think it's an inaccurate reflection as it, in, the budget. And so I just think that that's something that, and to your point, right, that's that's not something that can be shown through numbers. But I do think that that is something that to me is more important than just conviction rates, right? That to me isn't helpful at all because conviction rates are, well, that's a story for a different day. Um, I think that that's a very bad marker of success because to your point, a conviction you know, a, a guilty plea does not necessarily equal justice, right? And so that's where recidivism really comes in because I think that that is a better tracker of are our efforts successful or are they not? Conviction rates mean nothing to me in that in that regard versus being able to track how well our clients are doing after diversion, right? How well our clients are doing once they get their cases expunged and seeing that they, you know, have been able to get their case expunged because they haven't picked up any new cases. I think that that is more important than, which we are starting to track now. Our office has implemented um, uh, an, or, you know, a, a program to help clients with, with expungements and reductions based on new changes in the law and things like that. But to me, that is a better marker for determining a quote unquote justice than, than um, just, you know, the rate of conviction and how much money we're throwing at, at prosecuting, you know, these cases, because at the end of the day, I mean, a lot of the cases that you and I have tried have been nonsense. <laughs> like they, like, should our tax dollars really be going to try these cases? I mean, when you just add up the amount of money it takes to prosecute it with one prosecutor, their intern, the judge, the bailiff, three clerks in there, you, me, our interns. I mean, you know, it just isn't worth it. So that that's kind of, that was my thinking on 
folk, like let's shift our focus. And I think that's kind of been a running theme in with, while not explicit in my letter, that's really kind of been my running theme in the letter, which is that let's shift our focus from what criminal justice reform or what criminal justice, quote unquote, justice looks like to this is, I think, better for not only the system, but for society as a whole. If we change our focus from X to Y, I think that we'll be more successful in our criminal justice system, which as flawed as it is, I I do agree that it is the best one that we have in the world, but there's still room for improvement. And I think that these efforts that are being made across the country to reform criminal justice in a lot of different ways, we are working toward a more equitable system, which is ultimately what we want. We want due process of law, fairness, and equity. A hundred percent. And I mean, I always, I always remind people that, you know, the whole premise of the criminal justice system is for rehabilitation. Punishment should be an afterthought. And if we're actually able to address the rehabilitative component of the criminal justice system and attack recidivism, well, that is going to have nothing but a beneficial effect on the budget, on the system, on everybody's workload. And I agree with you 100% that that goal of reducing the recidivism rate should be a goal of all players in the system, not just one subgroup at like the end of the process that may or may not, depending on you know, not necessarily who is your super, who is supervising you, you know, because that's going to depend, change based on your probation officer or your parole agent or whoever is personally responsible for for you at that point in time. And so it really needs to be a collaborative goal of all players in the system to have that individual, once they get involved in the criminal justice system, that they don't ultimately return. And that will just have a beneficial effect across the board. So I thought that that was really persuasive as well. And again, that point hits hits to the heart of today's conversation, which is, you know, just trying to funnel money to get prosecutions and convictions isn't the best way for the criminal justice system to operate, isn't the best use of a county's budget. And so hopefully this letter was taken into consideration. I hope we've inspired any listener out there to write their own letter to their own local representative and advocate for these changes because if we're able to make them happen, we will have a better budget, we will have a better system. And, you know, that's why we fight these fights. So Shandy, it's been an amazing having you on. I've hope, you know, it's been amazing having you on. I've learned a lot. I've been really inspired. And, you know, we have these conversations daily that this notion of taking it to the box can apply to a courtroom or out of the courtroom and you 100% took an issue to the box with this letter. And so as we end our show, can you explain to the members of the jury, what is the significance of taking an issue to the box mean to you? Ooh, I think this is a great question to end on Lucas. And first of all, thank you for having me. This has been um, awesome. I'm glad that I was able to talk more about this letter that I sent. I also hope that other people who listen to this are inspired to reach out. I know it's really easy to say I'm just one person and I don't know, you know, what I can do to be helpful. Literally just getting into the ring and trying, you know, the worst they can do is say no, right? But if you don't say anything, then you'll never know. And so for me, taking it to the box means that I am going to fight tooth and nail to get what I believe is the best outcome for my client and for society as a whole. Um, a lot of what I do, um, not only at, you know, at work, but also outside of the community is in an effort to make my community as a whole better. I am a very community-based person. I really value, you know, trying to uplift everyone as a whole and especially communities of color who have had, you know, their own issues with oppression and even and even seeing things that I've seen firsthand or experienced firsthand as a person of color. And so my job, whether it's something I get paid for or just something I put in air quotes, you know, is taking it to the box because I want to ensure that I help as many people as I can down the line. And, you know, particularly in our criminal legal system, um, I'm trying to make a change from saying criminal justice system to criminal legal system because I don't think it's just yet. We're getting there, but I think we're still working on it. 
but I, I want to do as much as I can to not only help my clients, but to help the community as a whole. And for me, it's just attacking these issues on all sides. And so hopefully I've been able to do a little bit and I will continue to fight the good fight along with you, Lucas. All day, every day. And as I always say, closed mouths don't get fed. And so, yeah, the worst someone could say is no. And that's already the state of the case. So, you know, make that argument, make that fight, take that matter to the box. Shandy, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Well, members of the jury, that's our show, and I rest my case. Be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You can also find us on social media at members of the jury. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback, be sure to email us at lhursty at membersofthejurypod.com. Information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.